Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. It is time for the tech news for Thursday, April 22nd, 2021. And longtime Tech Stuff listeners know that I'm not really an Apple user. Heck, way back in the day when uh, Chris Paulette was my co-host, we would receive listener feedback, which is a kind way of putting it, that accused me of having an anti-Mac bias. Actually made it kind of a joke for a long time. And this episode is absolutely not affiliated with or sponsored by Apple. With all that out of the way, let me gush a bit about what Apple showed off this week during their spring-loaded event. We're going to start off with the new iMacs, which are just beautifully designed machines. Apple has always paid super close attention to aesthetics. The new iMacs remind me a bit of the classic iMac G3 computers from the late 90s and early 2000s. These were all-in-one computers, so monitor and CPU and all that stuff all in one package, And it was the big monitor style, you know, like the CRT-style monitors. And there were several translucent case colors that you could choose from. They also follow in the style of the later iMac all-in-ones, which went with the flat display form factor with all the computer parts built in. So now you've got this flat and incredibly thin. The new iMacs are like less than 12 millimeters thick, Uh, but you've got this flat display and you can choose one that has a back that has a bright color to it, kind of like smartphones do. I happen to really like the purple one. You can get matching accessories for it as well, like the keyboard and mouse will have accents that complement the color scheme of your computer. Now, the thing just looks gorgeous to me. It also has a really neat feature that I like. The computer uses its sensors to detect changes in environmental lighting. So if you're working in a space that has a lighting profile that changes over time, like you are working in an office that has a window, well, the iMac will dynamically adjust stuff like screen brightness and color balance and contrast. So for folks who work in digital photography or video production, Those are really important considerations. Back in our office in the old days, the video team would work in a darkened area. Sometimes you just call it the cave because they needed to make sure they knew exactly what their monitor settings were in order to get the best result from editing. And if the lighting kept changing, you might end up having two shots that have mismatched color balance or white balance. Anyway, these computers look amazing and If I were in the space to upgrade the old iMac I have, I would jump on this. But all that being said, I'm not really in the Apple ecosystem. The iMac I have is from like the early mid 2000s era and I haven't touched it in years. So while I feel the urge to splurge, as it were, I don't think I can justify it for myself. These are expensive computers. They start at $12.99 for a base model that has four color options, or you could pay $14.99, so almost $1,500 for the upgraded models with more color options. Now, that's not ridiculously expensive for a new computer, 
but it's probably more money than I should pay just because I think they look pretty. I need to have a better reason than that. But maybe I'll do a side hustle and save up my pennies to get one anyway because, I mean, they're so pretty. I also do not own an Apple TV device, nor do I have a 4K television. In fact, my television doesn't have HDR, doesn't support high frame rate, none of that stuff. Anyway, all that being said, the announcements regarding the new Apple TV 4K, which does support HDR and high frame rate, also included something that I thought was super cool. All right, so the device lets you stream content to your television or download stuff to the Apple TV device, and then you can view it on your super fancy television. All of that is standard. None of that is new stuff. But the thing that impressed me is that Apple has built in a tool that automates sort of like the TV settings, like brightness, contrast, and color balance. Using an iPhone, Apple TV owners can do a sort of automated calibration, but it's not affecting the the TV settings itself. What it does is it measures the color balance that your television is outputting, you know, the brightness, the, the, the white balance, all these sort of things, the contrast. The iPhone can pick that up and then adjust the video streaming to the television, so the settings of the video, so that the TV displays video that is close to industry standard specifications. So again, it's not changing the settings of the television set, but rather the video feed so that it shows up on your TV the way that the creators of various films and television shows intended. And I think this is phenomenal. It's a pretty common experience for people to get a television home from the store and they set it up and then they sit down and watch and they feel like the picture quality just isn't as good at home as it was in the store. Well, getting the settings just right for your particular viewing environment takes a little bit of effort, and it's not necessarily intuitive or easy, particularly depending on the model of the television. The user interface for some of these TVs gets to the point where you could spend hours trying to tweak settings and and not be an any better result by the end of the day. And all of that means that you're going to have a less than optimal viewing experience. So this new feature for Apple TV helps you get around that by having the stream adjust for the janky settings of your television, which I happen to like a lot. Oh, and then there's the iPad Pro. Heck, I'm on record years ago saying the iPad would be a flop. It is one of the dumbest things I've ever said on this show. And if you've been listening for a long time, you know that comes up against some pretty stiff competition. But I want to talk about a feature that Apple calls Center Stage, and it involves using the iPad Pro as a video camera. Now, I know there's a social stigma attached to using a tablet as a camera, and I get that, but this is kind of neat. The iPad Pro has a wide-angle lens, which lets you get a really good field of view of a scene. So imagine you set up an iPad Pro to act as your video camera as you do some sort of, you know, YouTube-style video. The example that Apple used was a cooking video, which was perfect. Center Stage has the iPad Pro digitally punch in, zooming in, and effectively cropping out the edges of the field of view so that 
you are in the center of the frame. But because we're talking about a wide angle lens, that gives you the freedom to move a little bit to the left and to the right. You've got some space there. And the iPad Pro can digitally pan the perspective, keeping you near the center of the frame even as you move around. It's kind of the same effect as if there were someone operating a camera and they were panning the camera to keep you in view. If someone else happens to join you in the video, the iPad Pro can digitally zoom out and keep you both inside the frame of view. It's like having an automated camera operator. So I could see that being really handy for certain types of single creator videos like ASMR artists or cooking videos or maker videos. And I think that is super neat. Apple had a lot of other stuff to talk about as well. They had a purple iPhone, as in the back of the iPhone is purple. And they also showed off AirTags, which are little tokens you can attach to stuff like your keys, or maybe put one inside your wallet or your purse. And when you can't find those things, like when that happens, you can use your iPhone that's paired with that tag to track down where it is. Apple's version gives you an indicator that tells you what direction the lost object can be found in. So you have a little arrow that says, go this way. And it also tells you how far away you are from it. It gives you like a, a distance meter and it includes haptic feedback as you start to get closer, which is kind of like it's saying you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer as you know, you get close to whatever it is you lost. Now, these kind of tags aren't exactly new. Tile does something similar. And in fact, there is some ongoing kerfuffle related to this, but uh, I'll have to cover that in a later episode because it's just breaking news as I record this. But Apple's app approach is more precise than what I have seen in other implementations. Anyway, most of the stuff I mentioned will be available for order by the end of April, and a lot of it won't actually start shipping until the second half of May. And again, I am not an Apple guy, but I do admit some of these things sound kind of cool and useful for specific applications, specific use cases, specific types of users. I just don't happen to fall into those categories. But I do encourage folks who do fall into those categories to look into it further. However, we have some other tech news to touch on. Over in the UK, TikTok is in some legal trouble. Anne Longfield, who is the former Children's Commissioner for Britain, has filed a lawsuit that alleges TikTok has collected personal information of children who are using the app, which is a huge no-no in the UK and the European Union. The lawsuit seeks out a staggering $1 billion in damages from the company to cover for the data collection that has been going on since May of 2018, according to the allegations. The collected data includes stuff that you would expect, like telephone numbers, location information, and of course, the videos actually shared through the app. But Longfield argues that this process is not communicated clearly to the user, and moreover, goes to great lengths to make it unclear what the company is actually doing with all the data it's collecting. The lawsuit seeks to force TikTok to stop the practice of collecting data that's originating from children using the app. This is, at best, a complicated solution. For TikTok to work, it has to be able to collect some information, even if all it's doing is enabling the basic features of the app. A total halt could mean that TikTok simply won't be able to find a way to make things work for younger users, which in turn creates the problem of how do you make sure that 
TikTok has an age gate that it's restricted to people who are of age, which is a thorny issue. TikTok representatives say that the allegations are misleading and that the company will, quote, vigorously defend the action, end quote. That's to be expected. There's no surprise there. As for what I think, well, all major social media platforms are ultimately in the business of collecting user data and then leveraging that data in order to generate revenue. That's the nature of the business. And I agree that when it comes to children, this is a huge problem. It's one thing for an adult to understand the consequences and implications of sharing so much information. Although I would argue that a lot of adults, perhaps the vast majority of them, don't really understand this fully or appreciate it fully. However, it's definitely a challenge for a child to understand it. And I am not actually sure what the right solution is here. Though if TikTok could somehow have like an age gate on their side that prevented the company from collecting data about younger users, I'd be in favor of that. I just don't know how realistic that is. Meanwhile, over here in America, the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, is making some moves to tackle the seriously annoying and sometimes dangerous practice of robocalls. These automated calls range from being a nuisance to enabling various scams and misinformation campaigns. And I don't know about you folks out there, but for me, it has meant that if I'm getting a phone call and I do not recognize the phone number, I do not answer the phone. I just let those calls go to voicemail and miraculously about 97% of calls never leave a message. This convinces me that whatever the call was, couldn't have been important, or else they would take the effort to leave a message. Meanwhile, I'm getting between 5 and 12 calls from numbers I don't recognize every single day. Well, everyone is fed up with that, including people in the government. So what exactly is the FCC doing? Well, it's kind of passing on that responsibility to the telecommunications companies, which makes sense. So the idea is that the FCC will create a database, or actually has created a database, that all voice providers will have to use. The database is the Robocall Mitigation Database, which sounds almost like it's a futuristic kind of police force, but no, this is a document or a database that phone companies will use to keep the FCC informed on their individual robocall mitigation programs. Starting on September 28, 2021, phone companies, quote, must refuse to accept traffic from voice service providers not listed in the robocall mitigation database, end quote. So in other words, if you fail to meet these FCC requirements, you don't get on that list if you're a, a phone voice provider. And if you're not on the list, you don't get in. That means like your calls will not go through to other people. The rules also involve incorporating protocols that will verify that phone numbers are coming from where they claim they're coming from before it can go to a customer. So you might be aware of the practice of spoofing. That's when a robocaller uses a sort of mask for the phone number. They will often end up using a phone number that's similar to yours in an effort to get you to pick up the phone. So you might get an incoming call and you're like, hey, this phone number is just a couple of digits off from mine. It must be local. I'm going to go ahead and answer it. Turns out it's coming from who knows where. And that phone number was spoofed. 
Well, these protocols will let phone companies verify that a call that claims it's coming from a number that's just two digits off from your number is really, in fact, from that phone number. If it isn't, it's got to be blocked. That's the kind of idea there. So the message here to phone companies is you have the tools and you have until June 30th, 2021 to get them all in place. And if you do, then you'll be on this list. But if you fail to do it, you won't be on the list, which means calls through your services are just going to be blocked to all the other phone providers out there. This is an interesting approach. It is one that worries me a little bit just for innocent customers of phone voice providers. I mean, they are not necessarily culpable for robocall practices that are carried out on that same service, but they depend on that phone service. Not sure how you work around that. Like, how do you make sure that the innocent customers who are affected by this are still able to communicate to folks using the phone? I don't know what the answer is there, but it is an interesting approach, and I will continue to cover this story. If you live in Seattle and you shop at Whole Foods, you might be able to pay for your artisanal groceries with the wave of your hand. Amazon is piloting a payment program called Amazon One at a few Whole Foods stores in Seattle. Customers who opt in can link a credit card or Amazon account to their palm print, essentially. So then after having their groceries rung up after they've done shopping, they can run their palms over as payment. They, they scan the palm and the money comes from the connected card or Amazon account. Amazon has already used this technology for a few of its pilot stores that operate without cashiers, and the company says that the tech could end up being used in other locations, such as sporting events and such. Now, in a way, I think that approach could help down on practices like scalping and the whole resale market, which could mean that for stuff like you know sporting events and theater events, that the folks who really want to go to those events uh, but constantly find it difficult to get tickets because scalpers have bought up huge banks of them might have a better chance. But then you could also say that whenever you start incorporating biometrics into payment plans, it gets a little creepy. So there can be a negative response, which I think is totally understandable and justifiable. Some groups are already expressing concerns about issues like privacy or potentially with hackers. So there are legitimate objections to this. Uh, the question is, would I use this kind of process? I mean, probably. I've used similar processes for lots of other stuff, like when I travel on airlines, for example. But that's me, and that's my personal choice. I wouldn't blame anyone else for saying, yeah, I'm not comfortable doing that. I think that's, you know, a valid response and it comes up to individual preference. Finally, some of you gamers out there might be fans of an old game called KOTOR, aka Knights of the Old Republic. This is an action RPG game set in the Star Wars universe. The story takes place thousands of years before the events of the film franchise, so it doesn't involve any of the characters from the Star Wars movies. The original game produced by BioWare published way back in 2003, and now it sounds like there is a remake in the works helmed by Aspire Media. That company is best known for producing ports. So in the video game world, developers frequently focus on making a specific game for a specific platform, like Windows PCs or 
the PlayStation or whatever. And they spend a lot of time and money and other resources to make the game. But of course, there are lots of platforms for games out there, and most of them are not compatible with the other ones. So if a company wants their game to be available across all platforms, they have to port the game over, essentially rebuilding the game for other platforms. Now, sometimes that can be done without having to recreate lots of the game. Other times it's a more involved process. And many game studios don't have the time to do all of this internally, so they contract that work out to other studios like Asper Media. But this sounds like it's not just a port to let players run the game on modern hardware. This sounds like Asper Media is actually going the extra step to remake the game, presumably so that the effects and gameplay are brought up to speed with more recent trends in the video game space. I'm pretty excited about this. Knights of the Old Republic was a game I really enjoyed. I liked how the game asks you to make various judgment calls, and based on your decisions and gameplay, you might find yourself becoming an enlightened Jedi Master, or a vicious and ruthless Sith Warrior, or perhaps something in between. So I'm really looking forward to seeing the outcome. Well, that's a selection of stories for Thursday, April 22nd, 2021. A reminder out there that if you have any suggestions for future topics that I should tackle in tech stuff, reach out to me and let me know. The best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 